This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone who tunes in around the world. Hey, keep writing me. You know, if you wrote me, you got an email back. I love writing you back and I love your ideas. And when you share your heart, your stories, or what a show or a guest meant, or what you're doing in the world, it's incredible. Thank you. It's a village, it's a community, a tribe. I have a, a wonderful guest today. I had been following him for a while. I just, every time I looked up, he was writing something beautiful on. And I thought, this guy is sort of, to me, capturing what I would feel is Christianity. And he is a campus pastor at the Cathedral of the Rockies. Welcome to the show, Mr. Ben Kramer. Thanks for coming on, brother. Yeah, it's so good to be here. So so good to see the work that you're doing. And I just loved so much of the interviews that you've had. So it's just an honor to be here. Thank you, Ben. Hey, I just had an inspired thought. You want to lead us in a blessing and invocation here as we start the show since it's uh, we now have an in-house pastor at what matters most. Yeah, well, I actually just my mind just jumped to what uh, the invocation I gave at our Ash Wednesday service where we um, really ponder our mortality and how precious and fragile this life is. Um, so I'll, I'll, if I can remember it from memory, I'll, I'll do my best here. But I, I think the blessing that I would want to give um, is is for the Christian community that um, we we really do listen to the the words of Christ that we are called to be peacemakers, not war makers. Um, and whenever we find ourselves trying to take ownership or monopolize the power of God for ourselves rather than giving that to others, we take that moment to humble ourselves, repent, and follow in the compassionate way of Christ. To me, then, you describe two different approaches to any spiritual path. And well, since we're talking about Christianity, there's one of the heart and the soul and of humility. And then there's one of the mind and the ego and of power and control and domination. Is that an accurate take? I would absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar, but to me, if I look at the teachings of Jesus and what the things we barely might know, it would be more the heart-centered, humble approach and the peacemaker, like you said. Yeah, I I really do feel like the what's called the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, or um, the Apostle Paul, that's probably one of the most profound areas of Scripture for me that encapsulates the the heart of God in in Christ. And and Paul says, um, in in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that is within Christ Jesus, who though had equality with God, did not see that equality as something to be exploited for his own gain, but he humbled himself as a servant of all. And then he goes on to talk about how that led him to the crucifixion, and yet God extols that humility, that compassion that was displayed on the cross. And so then Paul implores his his church in Philippi to follow that same model, to not put to put the interests of others, especially the most vulnerable, above above your own. And that to me just encapsulates the humble way of God that we see in Christ Jesus that's in so contrast to this, the ego that, that you're talking about. I'm hearing the words for that you do to the least you do to me, do unto others, 
love one another as I've loved you. Isn't that the essence of it all right there? I absolutely feel that way. In, in Matthew 25, um, you know, there's all this conjecture and ideas about what the what Christ's return will be like, but Matthew 25 gives a really clear picture of when Christ returns, he doesn't he doesn't judge people based on their right ideas or theology or religious orthodoxy. He he judges people between their on on the basis of their compassion for the most vulnerable whatever you did for the hungry the least of my brothers and sisters the thirsty the poor the imprisoned that you did that or you didn't do that for me and that's the basis of his of his judgment it doesn't feel like those words even from christ are given as much gravity as they're as they're needed what did he ever say about tax cuts i don't remember anything (laughs) <laughs> render to caesar what is caesar <laughs> wasn't obsessed with sexuality or getting that gymnasium built down in nazareth no drove a golden chariot because god wanted him to be prosperous right <laughs> his next mega church in galilee you know yeah the gospel of supply side jesus <laughs> supply side i haven't heard that one that's good I, I use that one. <laughs> uh, and some would say heretic at, at those giant churches. Ben, how did you end up in the ministry? Did you feel called? Was it, it start out as an intellectual pursuit? Did you have a mystical experience? Well, so I was raised in um, what many would call the fundamentalist Christian tradition. Um, we, there was just a lot that happened with my family. Um, I born and raised here in Idaho. Um, and so we... In rural Idaho, there's there's not really uh, a lot of choices when it comes to religion, you know. So uh, we ended up. I was homeschooled, uh, kindergarten to uh, high school, all the way through um, senior high, and we were part of a very fundamentalist uh, homeschool group at the beginning. And so I I look back on on that part of my life. I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was five and felt the call to be a pastor at seven and. But I look back on that and see that it was very um, culturally understood that I would go on to be a, a pastor, you know, and then I took that on as my own, as a people-pleasing firstborn, you know. Uh, but now, you know, I I still couldn't shake that call even after we left that sort of context. Um, we stopped attending church even um, at the, the last few years of high school just because of the brokenness and and the hurt and the spiritual manipulation that my family was was receiving and so i i helped, you know felt this call to to ministry but i i knew what i didn't want it to look like <laughs> and so i had to find an expression that really spoke of of grace um and and the the redemption of of spirituality that i wanted to see in the world um and that's when i stumbled on uh john wesley's uh, sermons and his idea of um, redeeming grace. Um, and so NNU, which is a, a Wesleyan university here in Nampa, Idaho, um, they offered me a, a ministerial scholarship at that time and the stars kind of aligned. And so I just took that step of faith and said, okay, if if this is really God where you're where you're calling me to be, then I'm I'm gonna pursue it with my full my full heart um and so yeah the the rest after that i just kept taking those steps to end up where i am today 
to my ears, that sounds kind of traumatic in terms of the upbringing, was it? And was there a lot of healing that needed to take place for you on the inside so you could sort of be free and so spiritually and to in to be authentically uh, in a place of peace to minister to others? Yeah, I think that's such an important question because I feel like in many ways I'm I'm still healing and I, I see wounds in my family that still needs healing, but I also see it on, on a higher level as well, culturally, that the, the microcosm of that movement that we were part of is reflective of a lot of spiritual trauma and wounds that we see in our, our nation. Um, so the, the, the fundamentalist group that we were a part of is, is part of what's known as the Christian identity movement. And it predates uh, the United States. It was called British Israelism um, in, in Great Britain. But it, it, it's a very racialized and nationalistic um, view of Christianity. That they literally believe that um, Satan slept with Eve in the Garden of Eden and Cain, her firstborn, was the first uh, Jewish person in the world. And so they see Jews as having um, satanic blood infused with them, so unredeemable. And they literally believe that the beasts of the field were uh, people of other races. And so Adam and Eve were the first Aryan, the first white people uh, created by by God. And, and so then this whole call, uh, their theological emphasis um, in their homeschool curriculum, the, the conferences that they have. And, and this is, you know, this is a movement that has been been part of the American um, culture uh, since its since its beginning in 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 many extremist pockets. But Idaho is kind of this uh, this place that attracts groups like that that can kind of um, operate in anonymity um, here. And so after after, we we left that that group when kind of the blinders fell off because um, my family is only a family of four and they were trying to establish relationships and friendships and do what was best for their kids and so when you're part of that kind of religious ecosystem that is theologically based in the hatred of other people simply because of their race or ethnicity um, their gender it's very patriarchal as well. Um, a lot of spiritual wounds can happen, especially for, uh, you know, a small kid like me who is impressionable and just wanting to know this authentic picture of, of Christianity. And so I, I, I am still on this road of, of healing. And as a pastor, even in ministry, I will receive some of those um, pushback that reopens some of those wounds. So you know, this this process of healing from those things in regards to my call feels like this kind of ongoing journey um, for me. How do you come up with a white supremacist premise if the guy you love and worship is a dark-skinned Semite in the Middle East? <laughs> you You literally change his identity. I mean, the most famous portrait of Jesus in all the world that was I think painted around the 1940s 1950s it it is a it is a white portrait of Jesus you know blue blue eyes um flowing blonde hair like you literally remake Jesus in your own white supremacist image 
Um, that's that's a lot of what you saw in mine mine Kampf from from you know he's he literally racializing the faith and you remake all the prominent figures in in your own image um and it can become a very powerful weapon of hate uh when you co-opt religion for for those purposes well stated and i always thought growing up too that hitler preached about the aryan race tall striking cheekbones blonde hair blue eyes was the master race and i said and has anyone looked at hitler yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this is nuts. This is like Blazing Saddle when the sheriff put the gun to his own head. Yeah. And, and you know what one of the biggest uh, eye-openers was for me? Do you know, do you happen to know whose portrait, as as Hitler was rising in the political ranks in Germany, do you know whose portrait and book that he kept in his office, this giant portrait behind his desk, do you know who it was? The famous white supremacist in America, Henry Ford. Look at you, historian, right there. Yeah, and his his Henry Ford's secretary was an ardent proponent of Christian identity, which was the homeschool group that I was a part of. And so his he, he was very uh, much an influence with Henry Ford and built built this perspective. And was the main editor of his book, the the Jewish Problem, which Hitler used and was deeply influenced by in Germany. And, and so like when we realized that so much of Hitler's perspective was influenced by prominent Americans and not the other way around, um, it, it really does give us a pause of, of what we really do need to repent from <laughs> these sins that have become so much part of, of, of who we are as a, as a people. You're making an excellent point. You know what they call their initial eugenetics programs and the whole thing around the Jews? No. The Indiana Project. Oh, my goodness. They were copying us, and they were also looking at segregation, Jim Crow, mm -hmm. what we did to the Native Americans. Yeah. You don't read yeah. this in the white supremacy uh, <laughs> history books that we get. We're always benevolent, and we show up on a continent and just claim it, and that no one lived here of consequence, and it's incredible. Well, and when you're when when you're raised in a culture like I am, it's not just whitewashed history. It's whitewashed history that is called for and willed by God. And so like you have that other added element that we are exceptional because God has made us exceptional. And so then you when you th make something spiritual like white supremacy it's, it becomes untouchable like no we are exceptional we are called by god and if you start questioning these things or calling out these sins then it questions that exceptionalism and that divine mandate that you believe that god has given this this country sounds like the cliff notes version of manifest destiny yeah exactly how does it get so far off track ben well, I think I can only speak for our our context here. I think I think it can get so far off track when we give over to what's profitable and powerful for us alone. And when you have, as we can see in even today's media, fear, fear 
makes things sell faster. Fear um, mobilizes political support when you ostracize and demonize someone else. When you make the other an enemy, um, that becomes really lucrative and really powerful for a certain group of people. And so I think whenever those who have positions of privilege um, we see this with Emperor Constantine. I think he's probably one of the first and famous figures who who u- utilized Christianity uh, to make it the official religion of Rome for a lot of these because it was politically advantageous. Um, and so I, I think once you have prominent, very wealthy, powerful people co-opting religion in that way, then we make theologies to justify it along the way. Um, because we want to keep and maintain that privilege and power and, and things can go astray, um, so quickly, but there's always a movement that is in protest. Like we wouldn't have the monastic movement, um, that was in protest, the desert mothers and fathers that was in protest to what they saw in Constantine. So there's always this subversive movement, at least within Christianity that is pushing against, um, the the what I've called the the uh, empire Christianity, like the Christianity that wants to be an empire rather than a Christianity that wants to pursue the the kingdom of God. You sound like my dear friend and mentor, Father Richard Rohr. <laughs> well, that's probably one of the best compliments I've I've ever gotten. <laughs> he is such a he is such a treasure to the world and has just been so informative in my own life as well. Isn't he the embodiment of it? I I feel, I mean, you can't, I challenge anyone to just have a one-on-one conversation with him and not be, not be changed and, and have your, have your most profound perspectives changed and you like him for it. <laughs> like you, you love him for changing your mind in the way that he does, because he does it with such kindness and compassion. Um, even towards his harshest critics, I've never heard him um, be unkind and gosh, what that is just so needed in today's religious environment. And he's brilliant. I know some of the hardcore ministers will condemn him, but then he'll say, let's sit down and talk about it. And they never show up. Yeah. They never show up. (laughs) Yeah. I think the jet was being serviced that day or the Ferrari needed oil. Right. There you go. What do you think of those charlatans with the multiple God wants us to be proud? I'm going to speak of Joel Olstein too, with his $52 million house, his Ferrari. And I remember there's the floods in Houston, and they're like, open the church, which is the old, like where the Houston Rockets played. You know, it's gigantic. So to put the housing, and they said, oh, it's flooded. And somebody went down there and it wasn't flooded. And they said, it's sanctuary, not a, you know, a hotel, whatever. Hey, that con's been going on forever. But to me, even as a layman who loves Jesus, I find those guys especially painful. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, and granted, I've had people who, you know, that sort of, because there's a few things that, you know, I think are accurate depictions of a Joel, Joel Osteen kind of Christianity, where it's, it's more of a self-help. But I, I really do think that um, it is the end result when you see Christianity as in, indistinguishable from capitalism because what's capitalism's like fundamental virtues is rugged rugged individualism you're doing this on your own um and to gain capital at by any means necessary right and so when you have a theology that really 
um, puts those things on steroids, um, the person who becomes the most profitable is the CEO, <laughs> the one who is is propagating that. And that's figures like like Joel Osteen. And and I've heard, you know, there's there's so many just tragic stories about you know how they gave all of their their possessions their their money to achieve the promises that Joel Osteen was was promising and those like him and they've just found themselves in financial ruin and also psychologically um damaged because the promises were never fulfilled the way that they were they were told um so i just think there's there's just so much problematic uh things going on there especially when you are f- claiming to follow someone who said behold i bring good news to the poor <laughs> right and, and and so there's 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 elements of truth in in what they use to, to in their message but are the are the poor really having good news brought to their lives are they the ones that are able to succeed and flourish when when the leader of a movement is flourishing more than the poor people around them especially during flood circumstances there needs to be a serious reevaluation of uh theological convictions in in my perspective i like that in a way it gives it's like manifest destiny it's no different than it gives you the rationalization because the way of jesus is hard Love your enemies, give up your riches, serve others first. So if you don't like that message, like from Father Roar, you go down to the, uh, you know, the the drive-in or the drive-through Jesus, and then or the Joel Osteen version, and he says, "Hey, just keep all your money. The poor are poor because they don't believe or whatever." And uh, you know, he wants you to be prosperous and selfish and narcissistic and be on Instagram. So it's like, okay, I think that's the correct message. Yeah. The uh, modern evangelical movement has gotten very dangerous. I feel like it's extremely violent. It's fascist. So it's racist. It's white supremacist. How alarming is it for you as a carrier of the gospel and and just a dad? <laughs> yeah. And especially in a state like, like Idaho um, that I, I love, I love the, um, just the natural beauty of this state and growing up, you know, in, in the back country, backpacking, you know, fishing, all these things. And yet seeing a lot of the decisions that are influenced by the evangelical movement in our legislature, even currently, um, I, I don't, I'm not sure how much Idaho news you, you consume, but recently they just cut um, SNAP benefits for, for kids in schools. Um, and we, as a church found out that, um, a lot of immigrant families that were attending one of the, um, the schools here, uh, near the church, uh, there was, um, over 20 families in debt, um, who weren't told that they had to sign up for this program for it to continue. And so, you know, we stepped in and, and paid that debt for them, but the program isn't going to continue. And so they have this huge problem of where are they going to feed their kids when, you know, so many of them depended on those free school lunches. Um, and now just recently, they cut over $2 million for childcare in our area, forcing many incredible uh, places that provided quality childcare for our children and families um, to close their doors or to or to charge enormous rates where child care in Idaho 
um, even for a two um, two days a week for childcare, the average is about fourteen hundred dollars a month. That's just two days um, of the, of the week. And so when you cut funding from these things, they also cut funding for kids in abusive situations. Um, to help that was even advocated by our conservative governor they still didn't didn't um approve that measure and so like my heart grieves whenever i see these things and this th there's a host of other bills from lgbtq um legislation to reproductive rights and and things like that that have the hand of evangelicals in in the midst of it and so it grieves me of how hypocritical it comes across to our culture bearing the name of christianity when they say we care for the family we are a family-centered religion and yet there's legislations like this that are literally harming families um and just like what what kind of perspective of the gospel are, are you giving the world and then it, with my upbringing especially seeing those same tenants that I was raised with, this very racialized, patriarchal, um, very nationalist perspective of the gospel, of Christianity as a whole, becoming uh, politically powerful. And this, you know, it doesn't just fall from the sky. This started 50 years ago um, with the rise of the religious right after um, the segregation, uh, being against um, desegregating schools and, and things like that. So it didn't just fall from, from the sky, but to, to see in my lifetime, it becoming a more of a political um, movement than an authentic Christian movement um, to that bears witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is it's not only deeply unsettling it is so it reopens a lot of those wounds for me personally but it makes me so concerned for the future of of our country as well as the future of of Christianity and and it really emboldens me to to continue to speak and and minister in ways that says you know, there's over 200 different traditions of Christianity in America alone, and they don't own Christianity. They they don't own our reputation, and they don't have the right to speak for every Christian in the United States. Um, and not all of us are like them. And to be able to to make and elevate other voices who are who are speaking towards what I see more of the authentic witness of the gospel um, in our culture. Are you concerned about the earth and the environment as a father of a one-year-old? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's one of, I mean, there's a lot of things that dominate my mind during the day and especially when I'm trying to fall asleep. Um, but the the earth and the climate and the care, um, especially for, again, it's centered around this question, how are we caring for the most vulnerable? And climate change impacts the poorest people of the world first. Um, and yet it seems like we continue to make decisions based on industry, based on um, what's lucrative, what's politically motivating and what's not, rather than we need to care for the future generations. And instead of, you know, spending, you know, God knows how much on you know, some people are thinking, well, we need to have an exit strategy. So let's put money towards these space programs, which I'm not condemning as a as a whole, but in in the context of what we're not doing 
um, to care for our planet, which for Christians, like this is literally something that God created and put us as stewards of right at the beginning of our Bibles. Like you are stewards of this creation. Like the first commandment to humanity was to tend and care for the, for the earth. And so for us to be, especially in evangelicalism, to be ardent, um, protest any sort of climate care as, as liberal or, um, as against our political perspective or theological perspective, just it doesn't take seriously uh, the love for creation that God has and the love that for creation that, that Christians are called to bear witness to. It has all the feel of a nihilistic death cult. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and again, there there's a theology to back that up. We have this theology of the rapture where God's going to come and suck out the faithful and the world's going to burn. So like, why do you need to care for the earth when you literally believe that that God is this kind of narcissistic God that says, well, I'm only going to come here for the people who did the right thing, who liked me the most. You know, I'm who, you know, we have Jesus saying, care for the vulnerable, care for the vulnerable. And yet then this God comes back and says, well, I'm going to leave the vulnerable to burn now, <laughs> you know, this vulnerable planet. And so again, there's theologies to justify this lack of and blatant disregard for for the planet but it it is it's making nihilism central to the gospel when it becomes only about my personal salvation and getting to heaven rather than like caring for the longevity of the earth and caring for the most vulnerable among us the oppressed the the imprisoned um until Jesus returns. So, so much of the gospel says, are you going to be ready when Christ returns? And being ready means being about the work that Jesus asked us to be about. And Luke 4.19 is his like mission statement. It's one of his first public sermons in all of his ministry. And he says, behold, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to uh, bring healing to the sick, uh, to liberate the prisoners and to to liberate the oppressed, um, and you will see this fulfilled in your midst. And he was quoting the prophet Isaiah in that. And he spent the rest of his ministry, especially in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, doing that very thing: healing the sick, liberating the oppressed, setting the captives free from from debt slavery. So, like literally flipping over tables in the temple because they had set up an exploitative um, economic system that directly impacted the poor. And it threw off a whole weekend of business because the economy itself was rooted in these exploitive practices against the most marginalized of the community. And, and so that's the Jesus that we're, that we've built this whole religion around. And the world knows Jesus well enough. And I don't think a lot of Christians realize this. Our culture and our world knows Jesus well enough to see when we Christians aren't living like him. Um, and, and that's what, I mean, got one of Gandhi's favorite phrases is I, I love your Christ, but I, I, I can't stand his followers, uh, something to that effect. And so like when we're not living into that mission of, of, of Christ, then I'm kind of at the point to say, then just leave Jesus out of it. 
you know, go, go pursue these exploitive practices, treat the world that way. Um, you know, believe these horrible things about women, about people of color, about the LGBTQ community, but stop justifying it in the name of a brown skinned Jewish rabbi who is literally executed by the fusion of religion and political power like literally crucified by what you're doing um in the world just leave leave him out of it yeah and there was fascism capitalism even back then it got him bumped off just cutting into their action exactly is god to you i know it's an ineffable thing is it universal love i have to think how expanded you are in your love you can't think of Christianity as the only way to salvation. It's probably just one beautiful way. It works for you and millions of others, billions. But that there are infinite paths to the divine, that we come from the divine. We come here in form for just a nanosecond, and then we go back. And there's so much mystery here while we're here, and we come from mystery, and we go to mystery. What I know you can't know, but uh, do you feel that it's infinite love and all souls go home uh, or do you feel there's only one way? And if you don't accept Jesus, you're, you know, eternally suffering. I know that sounds as preposterous as Satan sleeping with somebody in the garden of Eden behind the old woodshed or something. <laughs> oh man. Uh, don't do that. So there's this passage in the book of John where, and I think it's been misused quite a bit uh, or deeply misunderstood. Um, it, and it's Jesus saying that no one can come to God except through me. Like that's an explicit phrase from Jesus. But when when we take obviously when you take any verse out of the Bible, it can be used for whatever you want it to be used for. And so trying to understand that in the context of Christ's whole life. So like at his birth, he had magi. These were people, Zoroastrian priests, these were people of another religion who saw God moving through the stars, literally showing up at his birth. And they left without being converted. Like they didn't say the sinner's prayer and say, we are now Christians, right? No, they they saw God moving through, through the Christ. Um, and then we see the Samaritans who are of a different there are cousins of Judaism, right? But they worshiped on the mountain. They had a different theology. They had a different perspective of God. You have Hagar giving birth to um, the uh, Ishmael, who is the the founder of what we would see today of the Arabic, and then you know subsequently the Islamic faith. And so these are all Abrahamic faiths. And what was the promise to Abraham, which your descendants will you know number to the sands of the of the seashore, the stars in the sky. Um, and so like when when you're taking that perspective towards Christ, then and he says in that same chapter, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this way of Christ, if if I truly believe as a Christian that nothing good um uh, if you see anything good in the world there is god right and so when when jesus says look at me like the way that i am living the way that i am loving the 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 things that i am advocating for to lift up the most vulnerable the marginalized to pursue justice to put the interests of others above myself this compassion that led him to the cross this is the way to God. 
And just like Christ's ministry, we can look at the Samaritan and see that. Like it's one of the most profound parables, which is why it's so famous is the good Samaritan. But I, I think we miss the, the radical claim that Jesus is making. He's using a religious political other. And in the gospel of Luke, the only other time the Greek word that is used for divine messenger of God that's only exclusively used for Jesus is used in that parable to describe the Samaritan who is who is literally embodying the way of Christ for this person beat up on the side of the road dead, right? And so I, that profoundly broke off the, the barriers for me to say, you know, I have people of other faiths, people who are not even part of a religious faith who believe that there is no uh, divine being. And yet I can still see, I can still see that compassion of Jesus in them. And so wherever I see goodness, that's where I see God. And I see God desiring for that kind of reconciliation um, for all the world, for all, all people. Um, and so I, I, I take a very cautious like I am not one who can see into the hearts of human beings. I can only see their actions, right? The fruit that their lives produce. And so even if someone says that they believe something different than my own faith, I still look for the evidence of Christ in them. And I feel like I can still find Christ if I'm looking for him um, in, in their lives. And then I leave the rest up to God, because guess what? Thanks be to, to the world can breathe the sigh of relief. I'm not in charge of people's final destination. <laughs> I am not in charge of people's eternal reality, right? I am leaving that up to God, and I am trying to work with humanity to embody that goodness that I have been profoundly convicted by. I love that, because it's the humble approach. I barely have my own world together on a good yes. day. Who am I even <laughs> yes. to tell anyone or anything what they know or should know or believe? My ignorance is as vast as the universe itself. How can I tell another? I have not walked in their shoes. Let me just be loving, humble, and serve. And I don't need to memorize everything in 40 languages backwards. That doesn't make me holy. That makes me neurotic and crazy and need some help. But, you know, just just be loving. Keep it that simple as the best you can. And when you hurt anyway, be humble and apologize. And look to help the least and share and be generous as the universe is with us. Be a good winner. Be a gracious winner. And give more than you get. And then try again tomorrow. And the rest of the infinite intelligence, genius, and love, and the whole craziness is too big for me. And so I just want to try to be here for my five seconds and be a positive presence and leave the rest to whatever it is. We gave it a word. There's a million words for it. So the word isn't a thing. Right. I think you've hit to the heart of the ancient Christian conviction. Like, they they formulated creeds before there was even a church, before there was even a scripture compiled and canonized. They said, these are the truths that we not own, not have a monopoly on. These are the truths that we confess, right? We confess these things to be true, a, a humble posture towards belief. Um, and so it, it it's kind of antithetical to 
the ancient Christian conviction to make it all about what we are certain of. Because certainty seems to be the complete opposite of faith. If I'm certain something, I don't need any faith. I don't need to trust in something beyond myself, right? I don't need I don't need to 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 look at things that I don't know. I have it all together, and so now I'm going to use that um, for my own benefit and my own power in the world. But when you are when you are convicted that there are so many things you don't understand, and you, all you're left with is faith that I I just need to take a, a trusting, humble step one day at a time, and continue this journey of understanding, continue the pursuit of wisdom. Um, because it's not that God isn't knowable. It's that if God is truly what we say God to be, God is infinitely knowable. So my finite mind is not going to be able to comprehend all of God, even in my lifetime. So it's a continued journey. Um, and when we make it about our own certainty, we actually make it not about faith, which is what Christianity is all about, the uh, the faith that we that we testify to in the world. Mm, so well said. Fear needs certainty. Infinite love just needs to be present. You said in one sentence what I was just trying to say. So what, well done. Well done. That's exactly right. That's the beauty of being a simpleton right there for all of you listening around the world. <laughs> Where the hell does Zeus fit in all this? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you'll have to save that for another interviewer uh, who is an expert in Greek mythology. <laughs> Which I loved as a kid, and no offense to the Christian doctor, and a lot more interesting stories and characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Plato. And actually made a hell of a lot more sense at the time. <laughs> what is your hope for the person longing and searching? And they're everywhere in the world, and I have that every day in my own heart because I'm a mortal, but I do take comfort in the eternity of it all. And I don't see myself as this. And I'm sure you don't see yourself just as the carbon life forms. And they gave you a name, Ben, and a little social security number. Um, what beautiful words of inspiration would you leave with us here for those listening who just haven't yet experienced that connection, haven't yet seen the light and the sunshine. It doesn't have to be the light of Jesus. It's cloudy, it's raining, it's dark in their world. Those times come, but beyond it all is the light of, of the mystery, the eternity, whatever the spirit. Uh, what would you say to them? Because I've been in that place. I, in my 20s, it was so dark. Jeez. And now I have the contrast. So I know it's real. If you're listening, it's not, you know, two guys chuckling away here happily, you know, right now, but there's a lot of scars under these shirts. And what would you say to them, Ben, if you had us, you know, the three of us in a room here? Wow. I, I think, gosh, if there was, if there was a question that is just so close to my heart's desire is, it is to have a place like that's really, I'm going to, kind of getting emotional here, but that's, that's really my desire for the church is to be a place for people just like that, um, where they can come and feel uh, welcomed and belong and ask the hard questions and know that they are loved deeply um, by other people. Because I think what makes those dark times so hurtful is when you feel like you have to do it by yourself. 
Um, and so I, I think my first answer would be on the collective side of it that don't don't lose heart. There are people out there. There are pastors. There are teachers. Even though they don't maybe make the news like all the people on the other side who are seeming to cause a lot more harm, there are people diligently working around you to try to create places of safety, of belonging, of, of profoundly searching for wisdom together and building each other up. Um, and so I would say in those those dark moments for my own life, what what really helped me to get through was to find other people who I knew loved me and I could trust with the deepest parts of my heart. And those are so rare, but they are there. Um, and so to pursue and find wherever it is, it could be in a sanctuary, it could be a, in a library, it could be a book group, it could be a, a pen pal, you know, it could, wherever you, it is that you find this sense of belonging, where you can speak to those wounds and know that you're going to be heard and not minimized and believed and cared for, find those lifelines, um, and then Keep your focus on what you love, what brings you joy, what brings you purpose, um, that restores your hope rather than saps it away and continue to take one step at a time and know that uh, even though we're two guys chuckling on a podcast, we we know that we've been through those things before and we're working with you in solidarity um, for, for a better world together. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.